are here for another week. Another week. I'm in a good mood because it is warming up. The days are getting longer. You and I get to talk when it's still light out and it's just a wonderful <laughs> day in the neighborhood. It's less scary that way for sure. It is. Uh, well, welcome. This is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. And we are your ghostesses. That's Corinne. Hi. And I'm Sabrina. And I have some news what? in the world. Oh. Yeah, not mine. I'm, I did. Well, I do have something. They're Okay. Let's just get into it. <laughs> You tell stories like me where you just keep talking about the story that you're about to tell without actually giving any details. Everyone's like, wait, what are we talking about? Wait, what's happening? What, are you okay? <laughs> have you read about the cult that started at Sarah Lawrence College? No. Oh my God, I have to send you this article. It is the most bizarre thing I've ever read. Sarah Lawrence College. Why do I know that? It sounds so familiar. Have we talked about it? It's on the East Coast, so you might be familiar with Maybe it. Maybe I know someone that went there. Ooh! I'm sure you did. So it's crazy. So basically this girl went to college at Sarah Lawrence and during her like freshman year, she met all these people and started talking about her dad, who apparently her dad was in prison. And she was like, but my dad tried to save me and my younger sister from my abusive mom. And like, it's all about like government corruption. Like he didn't belong in prison. And then sophomore year comes around and she's living in a house with nine roommates or like a campus dorm basically with nine roommates mm -hmm. and her dad gets out of prison and she's like hey my dad's gonna come live with us so her father lives with these nine what? women on college campus and no one ever like bats an eye or says anything i'm dead are serious are you kidding me like hello yeah. red freaking flag and where nine people that means the extension of nine people didn't get through to these girls that this is not okay? Yep. All nine of these girls were like totally fine with it. And basically he starts living with them. He becomes their like house dad, cooking them food and buying them expensive things. But then he's like preaching these messed up things to them saying that you guys are weak. You need to work out more. And then it becomes, I mean, obviously no one starts out like, oh, I'm going to join a cult, but it became a cult. And I'm really, it's sad. It gets really depressing. It's just crazy that, that it happened. This was in 2010, I believe. And it wasn't until... Whoa. Okay. I just clicked on an article and they have a couple like bulleted highlights. It says psychologically manipulating mm -hmm. and physically abusing a half dozen victims, holding a knife to the neck of one male victim and to the genitals of another. Forcing three female victims to do unpaid labor. Yeah, he it was like sex trafficking and extortion and conspiracy. And like, it, it just, it's crazy. And it started at Sarah Lawrence and it evolved over oh. these years and moved into New York City. And he basically just manipulated these people. And it's horrible. But you have to read the articles what? in it because it's such an in-depth. I'll send you this right now. But the, this one profile, it, it goes so yeah, in depth so curious. about the events and things that happen. And just it's mind boggling to me that a college campus and co other college students, no one said anything and no one thought it was weird that this dad is it. Why is it just coming out right now if it was back in? Because I think he was just indicted, but I think it took a really, really long time for this to even be caught. So it went on for 10 years until anyone caught him holy crap that is so disturbing i know it reminds me not really directly or reminds me and i haven't even seen the show yet but the pharmacist on netflix everyone's been talking oh. about it i'll start it tonight and let you know how it is okay i'll start it tonight too <laughs> perfect but yeah it's all about this pharmacist who basically discovered 
that there was some sort of collusion between, I don't know if it was like the drug administration or just one particular doctor or what, but that a ton of kids were basically being prescribed these crazy narcotics like becoming addicted and eventually oh. overdosing and it was super affecting this town and this one pharmacist was like yo like you you think i don't see this shit and he just started being super vocal and making waves and like making a lot of enemies on the way but then also gaining the respect of the world it's a documentary yeah it's on netflix it's oh. i think an episodic documentary okay i need to watch that there's also a new reality TV show on Netflix. It's called Love is Blind. Okay, someone was talking about that yesterday. It's based on the Australian show that our friend's dad, Jesse Robertson's dad was on. Oh, 90 Day Fiance. It's basically that, but like you don't meet, you basically have to get engaged to someone without meeting them. Ah, uh, better not. <laughs> but apparently it's a really intense, dramatic show and I want to watch it. Is it scripted? I'm sure to some extent, but no, it's reality. Hmm. That makes me uncomfortable. I know, but it makes for good television and that is <laughs> why it's successful. Well, if anyone wants a show recommendation that is very non-committal and <laughs> has <laughs> nothing alarming to it, uh, The Chef Show on Netflix, they just huh. released their third season. Or third okay. volume, rather. Is it like Great British Bake Off? What is it? It's, oh my gosh, I'm gonna butcher the cook's name, so let me look it up. I think it's Chef Show. Here we go. It's the show John Favreau is in it, and mm. um, this really famous celebrity chef, Chef Roy Cho, I think, Choi. I'm butchering his name, but basically, <laughs> the chef taught John Favreau how to cook for the movie Chef. Oh, they came cool. out like, I don't know, back in 2014 or something like that. And they missed cooking together. So they decided to create the show together. And there's really no real structure to it They're Sometimes they just like try recipes and screw up and like literally cook it three times over until they get it right. But it's How really fun. wonderful. And they have a new guest on every episode and they make some of the best dishes from the movie itself and then try a bunch of other cool dishes with different people in different settings. It's just That's like very delightful, very relaxed. And you just kind of watch two people hang out. <laughs> How fun. <laughs> very I fun. I like that. I just got an Instapot and I'm so excited and getting really into like what to make in an Instapot. So uh, maybe I'll watch that show and be like, what is can I make? Is an Instapot the same thing as like a minute cooker, like a instant cooker thing? I think so. It, it has like pressure cooker capabilities and then it just cooks things faster. Yeah. Wow. I am a consumer. <laughs> I consume food. We all must consume food. Actually, I have a really quick uh, podcast suggestion that I've been consuming oh, great. all week. It's called 22 Hours, an American Nightmare. My coworker Ooh. Sally recommended it to me. What's it about? It's about this family. I don't even know how we didn't know about this murder, but it's about this family who lived in like the D.C. area and were really well off and like lived the American dream and they were like from out of the country and blah, 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 blah. And they were like viciously murdered them and their oh. um, young Gosh. child. And I believe maybe their housekeeper or something like viciously murdered by this one guy who was oh, no. tried for it. And no, but it's, it's all about like 
just like the trial and the journalism that went into like trying to understand the motive and why this happened. And I mean, I'm only like four episodes in, so I can't tell you the answers yet. Okay. What's it called again? I'm going to download this right now. 22 hours, an American nightmare. Amazing. Not amazing, but I'm excited to listen. But interesting. Just an update in my life because I'm pretty sure this will, yeah, this episode comes out after this happens, but I have major stress because Nick and I have been dating for seven years. We are now engaged and our parents have never met and they are meeting. Wait, what? For the very first time this coming week. They've never met? They've never met. How can that be? I have met Nick's parents and his sisters and he has met my parents and my siblings, but there has not been a combination. What about like not even a parent weekend when we were back in college Mm-mm. and you guys were dating? No, nope, because he was two years older than me. And then we got serious. Well, we started dating his senior year. Wait, Nick is two years older than us? Yeah, he was a senior when I started dating him. So then by the time he graduated, there was, yeah, we, it was like still early enough that it wasn't, there wasn't reason for our parents to meet. Wow. Sabrina, this yes. is huge. It's huge. And my dad is bringing his new wife, who is a delight i love her but my mom has never met her nor do i think she yeah it will be interesting wow damn it i wish i was going out to california to see all so much drama and it's so funny because i i love both of my parents but there have been multiple conversations where it's like i need you to behave (laughs) (laughs) and i just need you to get along and just pretend oh everyone loves my dad it's going to be fun. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. I'm very glad my sister will be there. It's going to be like uh, meet the meet the Fockers. Yes, I think. Yes, definitely. There's a little bit of that in our family. There's. <laughs> I think Nick's parents are very different from my parents in a good way. Yeah, I can see that. I've met your mom and your mom is just such a delight. She's so freaking fun. She's a party animal. She that's is. For sure. Which is also worrisome because it's like, hmm, what's going to happen when the alcohol comes out? <laughs> fun times oh gosh i'll drink too it's fine we'll be fine all the good stuff you're gonna have a blast don't even worry about it well speaking of your podcast it's kind of a good time that you recommended that because this week we are doing an episode about hauntings that occurred after something murderous like a crime in said place yes murderous hauntings is another way to say that easier way to say it if you want to say 14 words you can say what sabrina said if you want to say two words you can say what i said yep you know they both mean the same thing you know the one thing they tell you when you're a writer is use as little words as possible to say the most and i think i said that with more words than i needed to say that as well (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh this is killing me i'm learning and growing and i'll get better as time goes on perfect that's what we're all here for (laughs) but you're you're first i am oh man okay well this is the story of the rupert family murders also known as the easter sunday massacre oh and only a few episodes ago we read a listener story where they mentioned these murders didn't say much more but was just like hey i'm from this area which is also where this was from so i was like oh we need to cover this story because it's fucked. Do you know what episode it was? No. <laughs> oh. I don't. Good. That's okay. 
I was fully in this story only. The town of Hamilton, Ohio is just 30 miles from Cincinnati. It is known as a very great place for families. It's middle class. It's pretty and set away enough from the the main town, the main city of Cincinnati, but still has a bit going on. And the Rupert family made Hamilton their home, and they were thought in the community to be this happy family. They were a big family. Everything was great. And one of the Rupert family members was James Urban Rupert, and we're going to focus a lot on him. So James, growing up, at least, he didn't really have the easiest life. His mother often told him that he was a mistake. He was the second child. And it wasn't necessarily that he was a mistake as much as she wanted a daughter. So she didn't really treat him very well. She often treated him a lot more like she would have treated a daughter, which was not the healthiest thing for James to experience when he was growing up. And his father was also very abusive and neglecting. But his father actually did die when James was just 12 and his older brother was 14. So they had to deal with the death of a parent. But actually, it was a a good thing because their dad was not a good part of their family. And so um, with their dad out of the picture, you kind of assume that things would start looking up for the boys. But um, the older brother, Leonard Jr., he started to pick on James a lot. And, you know, they're tweens, they're going through puberty, there's a lot happening in their life, and they just weren't getting along very well. And James was dealing with a lot, and because of his bad home life, he started doing poorly in school, he was really struggling to make friends, and he was just generally becoming more and more unhappy as time went on. And at age 16, he attempted suicide. And then he eventually did go on to college. So he was trying to, you know, pick up the pieces of his life and had some goals and college was in his goals. And so he went to college. But then after just two years, he ended up flunking out of school. And his older brother, Leonard Jr., who was named after their father, earned his... And I'm just going to start calling him Leonard instead of saying Leonard Jr. every single time. Okay. But Leonard, he went on, he earned his degree in electrical engineering. So James flunked out, but Leonard succeeded. Then James was really short and small and kind of fails a lot or or wasn't really exemplary uh, as a player in sports teams, whereas Leonard was super great at sports. James didn't really have many girlfriends or very close relationships with people, but Leonard didn't have a problem in the love department, and he actually ended up marrying one of James's ex-girlfriends. So, like, out of the few people that James did have a romantic relationship with, one of them ends up marrying his own brother. And then, oh, no. And then his ex-girlfriend slash now sister-in-law and his brother, Leonard, they have eight kids together. And so time and time again, this seems to be the direction of uh, James's life where he's just feeling like he's constantly being reminded of being this unremarkable person, that he's always getting the short end of the stick, that his brother is always the better version of him. And he's just really not feeling good about himself. I feel bad feeling bad for him because based on this topic, I have a feeling I should not feel bad for him. You shouldn't feel bad for him because here's the thing, at least in my opinion, is because the way I'm setting James murders everyone and we'll talk right. about it. That's that's what I was yes. think, thinking. But I think the thing is, is like there are plenty of people that go through the same type of experience growing up. Like his own brother had the same parents as he did. Um, granted, like he was 
better or or succeeded in, in some areas in James's eyes compared to himself. But like, there are so many people that go through this stuff and they they don't turn into these mass murderers. So right, right. That's the thing. That's There's, the, it's not the excuse you can use to be like, oh, but they, but poor them. Right. Like Ted Bundy had siblings. They weren't going around and throwing women in the back of their car and throwing them in the woods and doing creepy, gross things. Right. So then we are now going to the day before Easter Sunday. It was 1975 and it was James's birthday and he had just turned 41. So at the time he was unemployed and he was living with his mom, but it wasn't the happiest of birthdays because James was really feeling like this birthday was just a reminder that another year was passing with few successes under his belt. He had lost basically all of his money in the stock market crashed the year before and he had borrowed a bunch of money from his brother and from his brother's wife slash his ex-girlfriend slash his now sister-in-law and was just frustrated because he was in debt. He was a 41-year-old man who had to live with his mom and was feeling quite lonely and was now in debt to his own brother and his own family members. And his mom Mm. was getting increasingly frustrated with him as well because he just couldn't seem to keep a job. He started drinking a lot. And she was like, you know what? You need to get your shit together or I'm going to evict you. Like, you know, free rides, bud. You're in my house and your energy is not what I'm about. So, well, I'm not sure if she said it in that way, but... Sometimes you got to give some tough love. You do. And he he was feeling... He was feeling really low during this point and to celebrate his right. birthday and to blow off some, some steam he grabbed his i don't know how to say gun names but it was it's 0.375 magnum so i'm just gonna say gun from, you know it's okay that you don't know how on. to say those names <laughs> i don't either okay so he grabs a gun i'm assuming it's a little shotgun and he heads down to the great miami river in hamilton and he sets up a bunch of cans and he's just like shooting at the cans to to pass the day and and to that's how he spent his time on the daytime of his birthday but then later in the evening he goes out to the 19th hole cocktail lounge where he drinks for quite some time and he's there alone but he's chatting with a bartender her name was wanda bishop and she said that he seemed very depressed very low he'd been talking a lot about how much pressure his mom was putting on him and he told wanda that he just really needed to solve the problem and then at 11 p.m james leaves the bar but then he comes back a little while later and wanda asks him kind of probably i'm assuming jokingly like hey well did you solve your problem like you're back at the bar now and he says no not yet and proceeds to stay at the bar and drink until the bar closes around 2 30 a.m he then goes back to his mother's house at 365 minor avenue and he goes to bed and the house itself is a pretty small two-story two-tone wood frame home but it's on this beautiful like tree-lined residential street all the neighbors are are close or like know each other it's a it's a social little area so he mm-hmm. he heads home in the middle of the night and is at his mom's house which is where he's residing and the very next day was Easter Sunday March 30th 1975 so the families are in the town enjoying easter sunday festivities kids are out um, doing easter egg hunts people are going to church services people are visiting with family members and uh leonard the the brother of james and his wife alma and their eight children all aged 
between four years old and 17 years old. They attend a Mm -hmm. church service and then they go over to uh, 635 Minor Avenue to spend time with their grandmother and with their Uncle James. They're going to all celebrate Easter together. So James, he had a really late night and he had been drinking a lot. So everyone's downstairs, but he remains upstairs for the majority of the day attempting to sleep off his hangover and the Rupert grandchildren are outside they're playing they're finding easter eggs in the front yard they're they're going in between like outside and and inside in the living room and then Alma the sister-in-law his brother Leonard and his mother who's named Chastity are all in the kitchen and Chastity is preparing some sloppy joes for them to eat for Easter Sunday and they're all just hanging out ah what? That recording got so strained. Oh, creepy. You like, it, it was like everything you were saying was being said four different times, but in a different voice. Ew. It was very strange. Oh, God. Oh, God. I need to grab my Palo Santo. <laughs> here. I have a crystal. I have some citrine have right here. I have my protection spray. Okay, good. We have, we're, we're, in, we're, we have what we need. I, I literally keep this bowl where I have citrine i have uh amethyst i have palo santo and a sage bundle all right here in this bowl and it sits within arm's reach so when i say i have weapons next to my bed this is what i'm talking about spiritual Spiritual weapons weapons. okay around 4 p.m james wakes up and he grabs his pistol he loads it then he loads two 22 caliber handguns and also a rifle and he walks downstairs He first enters the kitchen where Leonard, Alma, and Chastity, his mother, his brother, and his sister-in-law all are preparing the food. And his brother had his back to the kitchen sink and was the very first person that James shot. No. James shot his sister-in-law next as she lunged toward him in an attempt (sighs) to stop him. And then he shot his mother after that. Oh, my God. Also in the kitchen were three of his nieces and nephews, David, Teresa, and Carol, and he shot all of them and killed them. The only sign of a struggle was the overturned wastebasket. So people really didn't have much time to react. And then James quickly moved towards the living room. He shot his niece, Anne, and the other four nephews, Leonard III, Michael, Thomas, and John. Oh, I was just at least hoping that Someone got away. No, no. It's really awful. Oh, this is so horrible. It is. It's, it's so, so disturbing. And one thing I will say that I found in my research, and I discourage other people from looking it up, is there's an actual map of where every single body was found in the house. Oh, and it is... No. It really bothered me. And I yeah, feel I like I, I usually have a almost like desensitization to is that a word i'm like desensitized a bit sometimes because i feel like i ingest right. so much like true crime podcasts and all of that and we read all the articles but the, that mm-hmm. the just like the body layout of where everybody fell was really disturbing uh. um so the murder of 11 of his family members happened in less than five minutes james uh. had shot many of his family members twice first shooting a shot to disable his victim and then going around a second time to shoot them in close range in either the heart or the head. So 10 of them had gunshot wounds to the head in close range and one person had it to the heart. The police counted 31 spent cartridges. There were three pistols, 
in the living room and the rifle was propped against the refrigerator door in the kitchen. He had reloaded a total of three times. So he only stopped shooting when he needed to reload. That is awful. Awful. It was the deadliest shooting to ever occur in a private home in American history. Whoa, still? I don't know if it's still. I know at least in Ohio it is. Oh my gosh. So James then took a seat. He sat in his house for three hours. He went and he changed his clothes. Then he called the police and he said in a very calm voice, there's been a shooting. And when the police arrived, they found James waiting for them in the front door. And behind him, they could see bodies in the living room. One of the bodies was of the four-year-old. This was the youngest member of the family who was dressed in a blue bib corduroy overalls with long sleeve (sighs) blue cotton shirt. He was lying on the floor at the foot of the couch. His body was outstretched. There was a bullet hole in his head. And in his right hand, there was a partially opened tin foil, purple wrapped, covered chocolate Easter egg. So he was in the middle of trying to eat a chocolate when he was murdered. His 13-year-old niece was, her body was by the door. She had been shot as her hand reached the handle in an attempt to flee the house. So just an extremely disturbing scene. This was a glimpse into the brutality experienced in the home and just absolute carnage. Like no one had time to react. No one had time to run. It was the the investigators on on scene, the paramedics and first responders are, they've said that it was so disturbing and it's images that will forever be burned into their minds. And those poor children. like children. uh, And they had to sit through their parents being murdered too. And then they were probably all so terrified and didn't know what to do. And he shot everyone to uh, disable them. It breaks So I don't know what the exact order was of when he shot people compared to when uh, he went back to shoot to kill. Right, right. Oh, that makes me so, so sad. awful. And there was so much blood that authorities said that it looked like a slaughterhouse and that the blood had pooled so aggressively <gasps> no. and just so much that it seeped through the floor and was dripping in downstairs into the basement. And the stains still to this day haven't been fully removed. There's still evidence of the blood on the wood and people that have lived in that house since all say like, yes, there's blood stains. Yes, you can't cover some of these things up. People live there? Yep. Okay. So James was immediately arrested and the Hamilton community, they were in total shock. They had just lost an entire family in their community, 11 of the Rupert family were murdered and to a man that they had believed was a quiet and pleasant neighbor who lived with his mother and that his mother was quote the sweetest little woman to have ever walked so the community are they're just at in absolute shock like people had been over to the house in the morning before chastity was talking about how excited she was to have everybody over for easter dinner and to be with all of her family and all this stuff so everyone was just blown away that this happened there weren't any real indications to a lot of people that something like this could happen in their town Mm. or to the rupert family so james is arrested and he's right off the bat pretty difficult in terms of working with the police. He's not giving any motive. There's no rhyme or reason for his actions. And he was planning on pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. And apparently his plan was he was going to say he was insane. He was going to go get treatment. He was going to be cured. And then he's going to inherit the $300,000 family fortune. No. Okay. You're twisted. You're twisted. 
Absolutely. And like whether or not he was mentally ill or not, which is something that a, a lot of people are pretty back and not really a lot of people, some people, but for the most <laughs> part, everyone's like, you're guilty. So yeah, that was his plan. And the motive for the killing really wasn't that clear. However, there was some evidence that suggested that this was a premeditated plan. So mm-hmm. the gun store employee where James had gone to, I assume by all of his guns, but that's a huge assumption that wasn't written anywhere. But uh, a gun store employee stated that a couple months before the killing, James came in and he had been looking for a gun silencer. Oh, And then the employee at the bar where James had spent his birthday the night before was told, he told her that he needed to take care of his problem. Right. So there was just a a lot of things like that that just kind of made it seem like this was premeditated. But James apparently was also pretty paranoid and he believed that his mother and brother were communing with the FBI and trying to sabotage him and his career and pinning him as a communist and homosexual and just all of these things that he made up in his head whether that be something that was accurate in his life and maybe he was suffering from illness or he was saying these things in an attempt to build his case of not guilty by reason of insanity. Right. So according to James, he said he didn't just walk down with guns and just start shooting his whole family. He said that he was going to go shoot some cans again with apparently four guns when his brother Uh. asked mockingly how his Volkswagen was, which James at the time had been very convinced that his Volkswagen was being tampered with and thought that it was his brother. So when his brother said that, he said he just reacted reflexively and he just shot him and then just lost control and just started shooting everyone. So he claimed it was not premeditated, that he was under psychological duress Though, oh my God, a lot of the evidence says otherwise. So, yeah, the trial does not go in James's favor. The trial's held, and he's found guilty on all eleven counts of murder. He's sentenced to life in prison. Good, good. But then it's declared as a mistrial because they were like, he can't have a fair case. It's Hamilton. Like everyone knows in the town what he did, and no one's going mm. to ever say that he's not guilty like it's unfair so they had a mistrial and then they held a second trial 125 miles away in hopes of him having a fair a fair trial so again he's found guilty on all charges Mm -hmm. but then later james appeals and is granted the appeal this time he's found guilty only on two counts of murder for his mother and for his brother but not guilty by reason of insanity for murder of his sister-in-law and his eight nieces and nephews. So they're like, no, no, no. He probably very much intended to kill his mother and to kill his brother. Like he despised both of them. He had a lot of issues with them pent up. And then it probably just at one point, he just crossed the line and lost control and was seeing red and just was no longer himself. And so it was not guilty by reason of insanity for uh, the murder of his sister-in-law and all of his nieces and nephews. Oh, that makes me so mad. Leaves you really mad. However, at the same time, he still was sentenced to life in prison, two consecutive right. life in prison sentences for the murder of his brother and okay. his mother. So he's not going to get out of prison. Yeah. His, it just, it bums me out just because they're just such little kids. Yeah. And like, yeah. So disturbing. Ugh, yeah. I just can't unsee the, the layout of the house and where everyone was. Uh, Don't look it up. I won't, but now, uh, no, I won't. But now you're curious and you probably will. I know. (laughs) This is what happens. Yeah, I know. 
Um, so then his first parole hearing came up in 1995 and he was denied. Then again in 2015, he was denied again. And at that point, he was 80 years old. And the next parole hearing is scheduled for 2035. And if James is still alive, he will be 101 years old at that time. And so James remains behind bars and his town has tried to move on. Just a year after the murders, the house at 635 Minor Avenue was opened and everything was sold at auction. There were carpets that were placed over the areas of the floor where the bloodstains could not be removed. People were like already disturbed from it and for good reason. And then the house was rented out to an unknowing family who was completely new to the town, had never heard of the Easter Sunday massacre or the Rupert family. They had no idea. No idea. They had no knowledge of the murders whatsoever. They're just like this nice little family that moved to town and they're like, woohoo, Hamilton, Ohio. We're so close to Cincinnati. Like had no idea. But then they soon discovered oh that this God. house was not so welcoming of them. They said that there were lights that would turn on and off. Doors would slam in the house, that they would hear footsteps coming up and down the stairs. They'd hear strange noises from all over the house. And they even said that they'd hear occasional voices. So not Mm. long after moving in, this family is like, peace out. We're moving out. And they did. And so began the cycle of families who move into this house and then quickly move out due to paranormal activity. Eventually, the house got quite the reputation of being a pretty haunted murder home with the blood of 11 Rupert family members still evident on the wood floors today. And so the house was left uninhabited for many years. No one was moving in. Like, it's just they left it. They let it be. Right. One guy, this one man, he reported on his experiences in the house when his family moved in. So he was uh, just nine or 10 years old after the murders had happened, and him and his family had moved into the house. And it's a two-bedroom house, so he was sharing a bedroom with his two sisters. And one night, everyone was asleep, and his mom woke up because the hallway light turned on, and she saw a shadow move through the hall. So she jolts up, thinking someone's in their house, someone is near her children, and she grabs the door handle to peek into the hall to see what's going on, and as soon as she touches the door handle, the light just goes off. So then she's like, duh fuck? And she walks around the house, and she finds absolutely no one. Everyone is still asleep. And then this man said that eventually he moved out of his sister's room, his two sisters' room, and then he moved into the basement. And he was down there with his stepdad one day, and they were the only ones home when they heard the sound of the front door opening, someone walk into the kitchen, and then walk upstairs. So his stepdad grabs a gun and goes upstairs to check, but they find absolutely no one in the house. And so they're like, that is enough for us. And this family also <laughs> moved out. So it's just a ton of families that supposedly moved in and moved out in a pretty quick amount of time. Yeah. More recently, and now we're like 40 years, 50 years past, almost 50 years into the past the murder. The house has been rented once again. So now there's a new family and the new family, there's a bunch of interviews with them. They've sat down and talked about the house Apparently, it's very quiet and there's nothing going on. There's no paranormal activity from what they can tell. So some people believe that the paranormal activity may have just been an echo of the past. So it took a while for the evil of what happened there, the stain of this 
awful, awful massacre to leave the energy of the home. So people were like, this was a residual haunting. James himself is still alive. So of course, like it wasn't his spirit, but they thought, you know, it was just like, just the fact that there were footsteps coming down the stairs, the fact that there were like someone moving into the kitchen and like just the direction and, and kind of way that it, the the paranormal activity occurred it kind of seemed like it was an imprint almost of james himself um however he's still alive so people believe that maybe it was just what happened was just so so dark that the energy took 40 years to dissipate but i like to think that maybe the rupert family themselves they were like let's stick around to make sure that James will never get out of jail, that he will never return to this home again, that he will never have the opportunity to harm anyone else. So I Mm -hmm. like to think that maybe it was one of them that was guarding the house. And then after the second parole hearing where he was denied parole and is older and probably won't make it to the age of his next parole hearing, Mm -hmm. that now they're like, okay, we can move on. And a light has lifted. Oh, I like that. I appreciate that. But that is the Easter Sunday massacre of the Rupert family in Hamilton, Ohio, and the haunting of their home for many decades after the murder. Wow. I mean, there's no shock in the fact that that house was haunted after the fact, regardless of if it was a residual haunting or if it was, yeah, like you said, the family sticking around and waiting. But I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that those poor souls were awfully confused after that i mean oh my god they were there celebrating a their easter sunday and then all of a sudden the a family member who they loved just took their lives it less than five minutes for 11 people to be murdered yeah it's horrible so so awful so horrible and like without <laughs> warning and just it's so sad like right. the description of the youngest boy and he's in his little corduroy like they're mm. all dressed up for easter sunday like eating chocolate eating their chocolates and having fun with each other and it's just Ugh, breaks my heart it's very it's so uh, it's so sad how it's a it's common knowledge and i'm sure many people have felt and experienced the stress of family holidays and events you spend with your family and and that's why so many crimes happen on those days is because of that like the green river killer killed often times or when he had to spend a lot of time with his family mm. and like around holidays because the stress and the pressure etc which is not an excuse at all but no. it's just interesting that 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 happens commonly i know and there are so many books on like the mind of serial killers and and psychopaths and sociopaths etc but it really is interesting like what is the distinction between someone who has all of the same triggers and all of the same experiences in life and doesn't react that way versus someone who suddenly is just set off and has no remorse or understanding of what they're doing or doesn't does it and doesn't care we were talking about this at work actually and and one of my coworkers brought up a good point I think it's a study that some people are born guns and so they are born as a gun and over time they go through terrible experiences in life similar to James and each bad experience is like a bullet in the gun like loading the gun into a and then at a point the trigger is pulled Mm. but not every person is born that way so it's like the it's a combo of nature versus nurture yeah idea. It's like the book, The Psychopath Inside. I talk a lot about mm-hmm. that. Super interesting. Yeah. Half of it's pretty dense science. However, it's worth a read. It's super yeah. fascinating. It does sound interesting. All right. Okay. I 
decided to do the story of Taliesin Murders, which begins with the famous American architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, who I'm sure many, many, many people know who he is based on his work because you'd recognize a lot of the stuff he's done. Some of the more famous one is like the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo or Falling Water and Wing Spread, Ennis House, Hollyhock. He's, if you look him up, all his buildings will come up and you will totally recognize them. He was all about integrating architecture into the environments that already existed there. So falling waters, for example, is like built on a waterfall and the waterfall flows through the house, which is really cool. Uh, He's a brilliant designer who founded organic architecture, which is what I was just explaining, that building structures to live in harmony with its environment. And he designed some of the most innovative buildings of the 20th century. Apparently, when his mother learned that she was pregnant with him, she declared that her offspring would grow up to build beautiful buildings. So she had some intuition. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Super fascinating. She believed it so deeply that she decorated his entire nursery with engravings of English cathedrals and historic achievements in architecture. So he was born in Wisconsin and he, yeah, so he like was basically every night looking up at the walls and ceilings of these amazing architectural buildings all over the world. Yeah. You have to wonder how much... How much his mother's influence and everything she surrounded him with influenced his direction versus right. like how much was really kind of like a premonition type. Nature versus nurture. Right. Yet again. We're just right in the middle. Right in the middle. So his mother contributed greatly to his future success, like you were saying, and Wright even like and Wright loved his mother so much. And in eighteen eighty five his Mother and father divorced, and apparently his father was a little bit abusive and ended up leaving them. And his mother filed for divorce on the grounds that he was emotionally cruel, physically violent, and abandoned them. And because of this, in 1885, when his father left, which was the last time he ever saw his father, Franklin decided to change his middle name, which was previously Franklin Lincoln Wright to Franklin Lloyd Wright because Lloyd was Welsh and it paid homage to his mother's heritage and family. And he wanted that rather than something that his father had chosen for him as a middle name. He was a true mama's boy and claimed to never have seen his father after the divorce, but his father's behavior left an imprint on him and later influenced his own erratic lifestyle. So as he's developed and grew into the man we now know in history, He became an extremist in the way that his creative mind worked to create harmony in the world. But then in his personal life, he was very destructive and had less. It was not harmonious whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And to quote the New York Post, the writer of this article wrote that Wright was a house builder and a home wrecker. He was rarely without a woman, sometimes more than one. And he met his first wife, Catherine, when he was 20 and she was 16. They got married and they had four sons and two daughters together. And despite his issues with his own absent father, he unfortunately fell into the same cycle. Not so much on the abusive side. I don't 100% know if that's true, but he would disappear for days or weeks and months without a word to Catherine or his children. Wow. But he always came back until 1903. And Wright was designing a home for a neighbor in Oak Park. His name was Edwin Chenney. 
And while he was creating the design, he met Chenny's wife, whose name was Martha Chenny. And she was this modern woman, an early feminist, and she went by the nickname Mama. And Wright was immediately taken by her. Wait, she went by Mama? M-A-M-A-H. Oh, okay. Because I've tried to call myself Mama, and people don't respond <laughs> in favor of it. You know, I don't know where, where Mama came from with Martha. It's possible, like, uh, this, I'm making this up, but like, you know when like you have kids and they can't totally pronounce your name so they pronounce it a different way yes maybe it was something endearing martha turned to mama that's true i don't know i don't know or maybe that's just what they called her and she's like i like to be mama i'm mama i am a mama but he was swayed by her he was just like oh you are so smart he considered her equal in terms of intellect and felt like he could have really high brow conversations with her and eventually he considered her his soulmate. So the two of them began having these clandestine rendezvous, and then they turned into these not-so-secretive meetings, and their relationship became the talk of the town. They would drive around in Wright's car, and poor Catherine lives, like, right down the street from this house that he's building, and just has to, like, be aware of the fact that he's just cheating on her with her neighbor. And both of them are married. Like, Mama's married to Edwin, who... Wright is building a home for. How is this just happening so openly? I don't know. I don't know. And the other parties were not in favor of this because, I mean, open relationships do happen. They do. But I don't I don't think it was an open relationship situation. I think it was like, no, we're we're cheating. Mm. And in 1909, they decided to run away together. And Mama and Wright met up in Europe and they left their spouses and children behind. They were basically like, bye-bye responsibilities. I just want to be with my soulmate. Let's go live our lives in Europe. So for a few years, they lived together in Italy. And then during that time, Edwin Cheney, who's who was Mama's husband, decided to give her a divorce, granted her a divorce. And was just like, I'm going to move on with my life. You clearly don't care about me. You don't want to be with me. So here's a divorce. But Catherine, who was Wright's wife, was like, no. I am not giving you a divorce. You do not deserve this. I am going to make you suffer. So basically, Wright couldn't remarry Mama because he was still married to Catherine. I was like, go cat. I know. I was thinking that too. I'm like, you know what? Get it, girl. Get a little revenge. Where you can. Yeah. So also another thing that Wright wasn't great at was saving money. And although he was a very well-known architect and very successful and probably made a lot of money, he um, spent frivolously, 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 frivolously. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I do know how to speak. So, for example, he had this playroom in his house in and he was always like this. Like, I think once he got started getting money, he was always just spending it on like the most random things. So. He had this one house and he had a playroom and he decided to decorate it lavishly to the point where it's full of chandeliers and an Arabian night mural and a wow. balcony for theatrical performances just in a playroom. As you can see from that example, he did that with everything in life. He just spent money as if it grew on trees. Oh, I, I finally just looked up Frank Lloyd Wright. He did the Guggenheim. Oh, yeah. That's the other big one. That's the huge one. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a big deal. Didn't he do another one that's like in Spain or no? I'll remember. He did one in Tokyo that I think 
there was like an earthquake in Tokyo and only his building stood or something like that. I don't know. I know exactly. I'm looking now at these, at the architecture, and I've definitely seen like half of these buildings yeah. before. He's made amazing, amazing buildings. Wow. And they're also unique. Like some of them obviously fit in similar styles, mm-hmm. but there's, it's not like, oh, that's a Franklin Wright style because he has multiple. Yeah. So he spent money like it grew on trees and he just was doing that nonstop. So Kat's like, I'm not going to divorce you. He's like, well, I'm going to keep living with this woman in France and or Italy in Europe. And then he's like, oh, wait, I don't have any money. Whoops. And he's super broke. He was just like, shoot, I don't know what to do. And so he turns to his mother who lives in Wisconsin and he begs her to buy him a plot of land where he can build his own home because he did not have enough money for it. Mm. His mother's name, who was Ada, his mother's name was Ada. Why am I having so much trouble? I am too. There was like a full two minutes earlier where I stuttered over every single word. Uh, His mother's name was Ada and she loved Franklin. And she was like, all right, Frank, Frankie boy, I will agree, but... The property in which I will buy for you is right next to my home. (laughs) So she brought him property in Spring Green, Wisconsin on April 10th, 1911. And it was adjacent to the property she owned. And I think her, his sister or someone, some other relative lived adjacent to that as well. So it was like a family affair. So Wright and my mom move back to the States and they decide to build this home here. And he called the house to lay us in because again going back to how much he loved his mother and how much he wanted to pay homage to his mom's heritage and roots to lay us in in welsh mythology was a poet and a magician and a priest and the word translated to shining brow so he built this property with that was consistent with the designs of prairie school which emulates the flatness of the plains and the natural limestone of the wisconsin area this i'm looking I'm just following along with your story on um, <laughs> all of his designs. And it says that it was built on 600 acres. Yeah, a lot of property. So he had no money, but his mom was like, let me buy you 600, 600 acres. Jeez, how did mom have so much money? I don't know. I mean, land in Wisconsin, maybe it's cheaper than where we are. True. Yeah, and it's a, it's a really beautiful home. He had built a studio in it and, you know, it expands the whole area. It has like a really nice little courtyard. He and his lover, Mama, move in in 1911. And Wright starts having trouble obtaining new jobs because, like, he's having all this negative publicity in in regards to his affair. And people were obviously siding with Catherine. Eventually, Wright had to kind of look outwards. And although he was already working internationally, he wasn't having any luck finding jobs in Wisconsin or locally. So he was traveling to Chicago a lot and to Tokyo and kind of international destinations. And he got a long-term job in Chicago and was preparing for this lengthy trip to Chicago for one of his larger projects. And he and Mama were like, let's make sure the house is all set. And they had hired staff. They hired a cook, a cleaner, and then people to manage the day-to-day. And then also they were still like adding additions to the house. So there were all these like construction workers or, or workers at the house kind of every day. They also hired a man who was a 31-year-old man named Julian Carlton. And Carlton was hired to work as a chef and a servant at Taliesin. 
and he came on recommendation and was originally from Barbados. He apparently had worked for one of Wright's really close friends. And so it was like, oh, great. He does great work. Like there's no reason to be frightful or fearful of this man. But just before Wright's departure, Carleton started developing some strange behavior and became very paranoid and concerned and fearful that an attack was going to happen, that someone from the outdoors was coming in for them. And he was kind of like speaking all of this like ominous kind of scary threat that made everyone feel rightfully so uncomfortable. Wright and my mom are like, okay, well, before I leave, we should tell him like we're going to fire him because we're a little scared and we don't think, you know, if he's having issues, we don't want him working here. So they tell Carlton that he has two weeks and his last day would be August 15th, 1914. So Wright leaves for Chicago and Mama invites her children, who she still ha- managed to have some relationship with, to come visit her at Taliesin. Wright's gone, but little did he know that his entire life would be changed and he would never return to the life that he had. Because on August 15th, 1914, Mama and her children were spending the afternoon inside with several workmen. Julian Carlton, it's his last day, serves lunch to the family. It's his final meal as planned per his final notice. And he left them to eat in peace. But soon thereafter, the smell of fire struck the family's noses. And soon then did the flames. Terrified, Mama grabbed her children and tried to flee and tried to flee, looking for sanctuary and safety outdoors. She busts through the doors, and unfortunately, standing just there waiting for her, was Julian Carlton wielding an axe. He struck and killed Mama with a single blow to the face, and then hunted down her two children, John and Martha, and killed them as well. But Julian didn't stop there. He um, continued to murder multiple people in the property, in and around the property. Uh, There was a workman inside the house, Herbert Fritz, who realized the house was on fire and he ran to go unlock the door and flee out a door, but he realized the door had been locked from the outside. So Julian probably went around the exterior of the home, locking the doors to try to prevent anyone from exiting. So Herbert frantically searches for another way out. His eyes land on the window and he smashes the glass of the window with his arm. He apparently broke his arm in in the action of doing that he jumps out the window rolls down the hillside and he like realizes he's on fire flames are burning through his clothing he starts rolling on the grass finally putting out the fire and then he looks up the hill to see carlton swinging the hatchet at his co-workers <gasps> and although badly burned and wounded both Billy Weston, who was the carpenter, and David Lindblom, the gardener, managed to escape the house and run to a house that was half a mile away. They got there and they called for aid. And when the people rushed back to the house, they found Martha, her two children, two workers, and a 13-year-old boy dead outside of the property. David Lindblom, who was one of the men who ran to the neighbor's house, died later from his burns and injuries. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And hours later, they found Julian Carlton's body. He was barely conscious inside the basement furnace, which apparently was the only fireproof place in the house. He had apparently swallowed a small vial of hydrochloric acid, trying to take his own life, but it wasn't enough and only burnt his esophagus. Oh. 
So aside from Wright's studio room, most of the house was destroyed. Carlton was arrested and Wright was notified of the horrors that took place. And Wright returned to the home with his eldest son, John Wright, and Edwin Cheney, who was Mama's previous husband. And they looked at the damage and the deceased, and they were completely heartbroken. And they arrived pretty soon after the whole incident happened because the bodies were still there. So basically, they decided to move the bodies, and they Mm -hmm. escorted the bodies of the dead and injured to Wright's sister's home, which is called Tanny Derry, which neighbored to Leison. And Wright also built that building. They brought all the bodies there. And then Edwin brought the remains of his children back to Chicago and had proper burials for them, while Frank decided to bury Mama in an unmarked grave on the grounds of a nearby chapel. And he has been said to never have been the same. And when he buried Mama, he like put her in the cemetery, but made sure that there was no marker because he didn't want to be reminded of the horrors and he didn't want anyone else to know where she was buried, really. I do think now, though... It there is a marker, but he was just so. I mean, it, that's so tragic for everyone involved. There ended up being very little justice because Julian Carlton died forty-seven days after the fire, before the case could ever be heard. He died because the acid he drank burnt his esophagus and made it very difficult for him to swallow. So instead of eating, he starved to death. And the loss of Wright's soulmate crushed him. He experienced symptoms of conversion disorder, insomnia, weight loss, and temporary blindness. And ultimately, people say it transformed his design methods as well. Like there was a shift in his work and the styles that he used in building buildings mm-hmm. and designing buildings. And his family came to his aid trying to take care of him. And eventually, he decided to rebuild Taliesin in honor of his deceased lover, but he hardly ever lived in the building and treated it more like this museum than a home because it was just too hard for him. And his wife, Kat, did eventually grant him the divorce. So he remarried. Unfortunately, every marriage after Mama went very poorly. He married this woman, Miriam Noel, who was later diagnosed as schizophrenic. And they just had a very kind of verbally abusive relationship. She left him. And then very shortly after that, Taliesin caught fire again burning down much of the property. Mm-hmm. He rebuilt it again for a third time. And that is now the version that stands today. It's Taliesin three, as he calls it. Wright died on April 9th, 1959 at the age of 91. He never truly got over Mama's death. And Taliesin became a national historic landmark and over $11 million has been spent restoring the home. But it's been met with epic difficulties, many of which people believe are due to the spirits that reside in the home, whether they don't want it to be built again because of the horrors that happened there. Right. Or if it's just because Wright's design abilities were so unique. I'm not sure. But memories of the tragedy are said to still linger today, both at the Taliesin property and at Tanny Dairy, which is the house where all the bodies were moved after the murder. And it's in and around that cottage, Tanny Derry, where Martha's spirit has been reported over the years. She's usually dressed in a long white gown and is mostly peaceful, but always forlorn and looking sad. No one's really interacted with her beyond seeing her. But it is said that the doors and windows open and close themselves within the cottage. The Mm -hmm. lights will turn on and off and witnesses say they'll, they'll close the place for the night. And when they return in the morning, Everything is wide open. The doors, the windows, the cabinets, 
drawers, everything is just wide open. Wow. Yeah. Freaky. And they're now it's part of like a whole, I think there's a, I'm not sure the exact term of it, but there's a, Taliesin now is like the a big complex. And I think there's a school and some museums and stuff. And so people can go around the property. And there are a lot of people who have been around the property and they'll be at one building for an event. And Taliesin is like, people don't go in it really, but people will be in another building for some event and they'll sneak around and go out to Taliesin to see the property. And they've heard voices. They've experienced some strange things, nothing negative, but just, you know, the normal unsettling paranormal feelings. Mm -hmm. It's believed that many of this, the spirits are still lingering in the building. So they think it's, it's those that passed away. Yeah. Versus it being like a residual haunting or like darker entities being attracted to the location. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's any dark entities. It's more just a sad sad feeling oh wow there's a sadness in that area and yeah and then they're just i'm sure maybe there's a residual left from from something Mm -hmm. so traumatic as as that but i think when it comes to seeing any apparitions or physical shapes of spirits they're just kind of walking around forlorn yikes wait which what town was this in again? Spring Green, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Okay. Because I did find online that there is in Glencoe, Illinois, Frank Lloyd Wright's Sherman Booth House is currently for sale for $1.15 oh. million. Well, do we want to move? See, so you could live in this house. Should we buy a house together? It's. I really like it. It's very beautiful. I'd buy it if I had enough money. It's Sherman Booth Glencoe. Sherman Booth House in Glencoe, Illinois. I'm going to look it up. It's so pretty. Oh my, it's gorgeous. Oh. I wonder though, I'm curious if all of the houses have that he or like all the properties that he has had a hand in somehow have some sort of like paranormal imprint just because of like it's his mark left on everything and his mm. lover was murdered and children. And I wonder. Yeah, if- I wouldn't be surprised if people have seen his ghost at his properties. Right. Because, yeah, he because he passed away at what, like 90 something? 91. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very curious. Should we buy this house together and find out? <laughs> Do you have an easy $1 million hanging around? That I don't know about. Did you win the lottery and not tell me? No. Though I keep buying tickets. <laughs> it's not for lack of trying. <laughs> but you are funding the lottery then. I am. I'm contributing. That's my 401k. <laughs> the lottery. <laughs> $2 once a month. That's my contribution. <laughs> Except for you never see that money again. Yeah. Well, sometimes yeah. I win $2 back. And then I reinvest oh. it and I just buy another lottery ticket well that's good wow so wild now i'm just like addicted mm-hmm. at looking all the at the, all of the photos of the houses and and all of the properties and man oh man that's like try as you might to be super successful and to build the life that you think is so desirable but it doesn't it doesn't save you from tragedy at all no it doesn't you're never protected which is no 
sad, but part of life. And Yeah. And I mean, there were so many people, I think, in Frank's life who felt betrayed by him. And then, you know, for this tragedy to happen because an employee kind of, you know, a disgruntled employee decided to turn uh, turn against them and, yes. and act revenge on them. Oh, and it's just like, when, yeah, yeah. What do you, what can you do at that point? Right. You know, I mean, they, yeah. And unfortunately, it, I think it does sound like an example of a mental illness that this Julian Carlton was, was experiencing something that, you know, came on suddenly or started developing later in life. And no one truly understood how to deal with that. Mm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's just always awful when it's like, just to think about like the fire and everything and being trapped inside and the panic that people must have felt. Yeah. That's what's disturbing me. Murder is sad. I know. Uh, murderous hauntings are not an uplifting topic by any means. No, no, no. But we do have ghost stories from our listeners. So maybe we should get to those. All right. What do you have? This is from Ivory and it's called Three Years and Counting. Hello, my name is Ivory. I'm a huge fan of true crime and the paranormal and an even bigger fan of you too. Oh, I wanted to write in with my story because I need validation for the terror I feel when I'm alone in my home. <laughs> I'm honestly Same. a really overly detailed storyteller, so strap in, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, my family is fucked. Not in a super bad way, mostly genetics with a history of females on the maternal side having dream predictions of deaths and the ability to blindly find fresh graves. Don't ask how that was discovered. It's honestly no surprise that I have a lovely quality of energy supplier. Basically, I have the empathetic characteristics and openness that entities can use to manifest. Yay! <laughs> this has led to so many fun and positive experiences in my life. So I'm just telling you how awesome everything is. So everyone's just so jealous. No, I'm kidding. It fucking sucks and has occurred in the form of nightmares followed by apparitions since I was five. My first encounter was terrifying. It's especially been sucky in the house my family currently resides in. Oh, no. We moved in a few years ago and in the southern Midwest, it's no surprise that it's that it has a not-so-good past. With a murder of a 14-year-old boy, important, and a couple of natural deaths, it's an interesting mix of horrible tragedies. We didn't immediately recognize how bad things are, and my mom and I wrote off the presences as harmless. The first and longest ongoing incident was the throwing of a wooden plaque in my parents' bedroom. It's a cheap little thing and fairly light, with the words, Can't adult today? <laughs> Teenage boy? Question mark On it. It would be easy to write it off as gravity or it being knocked or vibrated off, except it's not in a place that a lot of people walk closely by, and it ends up a good five or ten feet from the wall. When it first happened, about three months into our stay, my dad and brothers were home alone, and it just fell while they were cleaning the living room. Despite it not making much sense, they just wrote it off as them causing it somehow, and we ignored it. There have been numerous incidences of other objects moving in the basement door, which is padlocked shut from the outside, oh. shaking enough to alarm us in the main part of the house and somehow gaining scratches at the bottom of the door. Ooh. No. It all leads to instance number two. The event centered around myself. I'd been practicing the French horn, band nerd alert, 
in the dining room and had pulled one of the heavy wooden chairs in the middle of the walkway. Convenient, huh? After I finished, I walked all of my stuff to the room, leaving the chair to put away after I'd put everything else away. As I'm in my room putting things away, I hear my dad laughing his ass off. Not normal. And I hear, what the fuck is she doing? He comes into my room, still laughing, and asks me, what are you doing with the chair? I'm thinking he meant because it was in the middle of the walkway, and I go to explain, and he cuts me off and waves me over to him. I walk into the dining room where the chair is sitting in the middle of the dining room table under a chandelier that my five foot two frame couldn't have avoided hitting, putting that bitch up, yet it's mm-hmm. unmoving. Also, my 16-year-old self was also weak as fuck, so that would have been impossible. I adamantly denied putting it up there, and so my parents freaked out. More really basic haunting stuff happened like before until incident number three. My dad, my little brother, and I had been out floating all day one Sunday. In the Bible Belt, that statement is blasphemy, but I'm already probably going to hell, so shrug. What does that mean? Floating all day? Is that drinking? I don't know what floating means. Maybe. That sounds fun. It does sound like fun. Or the other version is like floating on like a floaty in like a lazy river. I Yeah, I was thinking floating down the river, like inner tubing down. <laughs> but maybe you're also drinking while you're floating, you know? You have like a little yeah. twisted tea and you're just like listening to Pontoon by Little Big Town and you're just having a good old time. <laughs> <sighs> That's what I would wish I was doing right now. That does sound nice. Oh, so you don't want to be here? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean by right now, I mean Caught like you. in the month of February, not right yeah. now because I so prefer reading ghost stories <laughs> over everything. Thank you. Thank okay. you for making me feel better. And we were on our way back when my mom called my dad in a panic. From what I gather, she'd been home trying to shower when two of our dogs in her room started growling and freaking out at the closed bedroom door. She assumed we were home and ignored it until she heard two loud-ass bangs in the direction of the kitchen and basement. So she called us, and we made that last 15-minute portion of the drive about three minutes. My dad jumps out of the car as soon as we get there and yells at us to stay put. I've always been too nosy for my own good, so it's no surprise that I got out and I followed. I found my mom crying and my dad comforting her, and he waved towards the kitchen. I walk in, and I see every single cabinet door even those that my six-foot-two father couldn't reach, gaping open as well as the oven door. We assumed the bangs were the doors opening and closing all at once. Now, somewhere up to this point, a random old-ass chair showed up in our basement crawl space that hadn't been there when we moved in. Now, I'd never gone down there, but my dad had shown me pictures of the chair, which also had a pair of old scissors stabbed into the seat. Oh, the picture had showed under the chair, the cable line that had been laid when we moved in proof that the chair hadn't been there. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to put the line under it. Well, eventually the chair and the pictures all disappeared and my family wrote it off until the most recent event, which occurred about two weeks ago. My family had been hearing a pickup in voices and the sounds of objects moving. So we were on edge. I had just gotten a new puppy, and my little brother and I decided to come home before my parents to check on him. When we walked in through the back door, long story, we noticed the disinfectant wipes that had been on the shelf by the oven were laying on the ground a good three feet away from the said shelf. 
I immediately wrote it off, trying not to freak. I picked it up. I continued <laughs> like nothing had happened. I walked through the dining room and was almost in the living room with the slightest sight line to my parents' room when my little brother gasps from behind me, runs past me, and repeats, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I start panicking oh my God. because he's losing his shit. And I turn around to see the sight of a decorative stool on its side that I had walked past. I'm trying to remain calm and look towards my brother to control that mess when I see past him to my parents' open door when I see the plaque that had been thrown countless times on the floor in their room. I ran. I called my parents and they came <laughs> home hella fast. I followed my dad back inside despite being told not to. Three years changed nothing and proceeded mm -hmm. to sage. I sage every room and then wait for my father to go down to the basement. We go down and I'm about three fourths finished when my father says, well, I'll be damned. I turn to see what he's saying. And I see the chair that had disappeared a year earlier. The scissors and all. I lose my shit again and I run. I'm later told that there was also an old ass baseball jersey with the number 14 on the fucking back. The boy that died was 14. I was done. I am too poor to move because college is expensive, but it's been pretty calm lately. I don't know if this shit will always follow me, but I do know that I plan to listen for a long time. Thanks, my dudes. And don't go in the basement. From Ivory. The fuck is this disappearing chair? And also that they just were like, oh, it disappeared. So it's gone. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Disappeared to where? And whose chair is it? And there are scissors in it. And this is just also disturbing. And old chairs are heavy. Yeah. I'm so curious because it, a 14-year-old being murdered in the house and a bunch of natural deaths don't seem like that would be the reason that a negative entity or some negative energy is there. But we know that darker spirits sometimes like to tag on and go to those places because of the sadness that's around there and right. like the that kind of energy like all of the cabinets opening and closing make me think that it's something bad because that's a lot of power behind it you know yeah but we've also talked about a lot of stories where like innocent spirits do open and close cabinets but everything because all it's at like once. yeah but it, it's like i can't remember what story it was but we were talking about like how oh maybe it was i was watching that show forever on amazon and the the way that they were talking about it was like that you can't totally control it and as you are a spirit for longer i, I think you can control it more but like sometimes you just get a burst of energy and like things like that happen mm, like when we hold in our screams totally but i think the distinction is that they felt terrified and that feeling is something you can't ignore right right right, right. Yeah, I'm really, I'm just kind of disturbed by the balancing of stools and chairs on other furniture <laughs> or just like on its side. Like, yeah, that they have is a weird so thing for chairs. Unsettling. And it just reminds me of like every scary movie I've ever seen. Like, I feel like it would be like the Blair Witch Project meets Paranormal Activity meets like the Haunting of Emily Rose, like all of these things <laughs> that it's just like, it's so disturbing because you feel like you can't escape. Like, you feel like, and the object right in front of you is now affected by that spirit and that, that spirit or presence or entity or whatever it is, is right there next to you, but also yeah. everywhere. Cause it's like intending for you to, to see that and experience it and like feed off of your fear. Right. I'm very curious what the other natural deaths are and what the other history of the house is. And, and if maybe it's not the spirit of this 14 year old boy who was murdered, but 
is his killer still alive? Because if not, there's a chance that that killer is taunting people who live there. Right. Yeah, that would make sense. Or it could even be one of those situations where, you know, there's always like, not always, but there could be a, a presence. Like maybe it is, maybe the presence of the 14 year old is there, but maybe he's, there's something stronger that's often suppressing him from coming forward or being able to protect. Yeah, that makes me sad. Yeah. I have a story from Jovelle, and it's called The Big Blue House. She says, Hi guys, my name is Jovelle, and I live in the Pacific Northwest in Everett, Washington. And this area is haunted as shit. The high school I went to, Everett High School, has a haunted theater. And I've worked in a haunted restaurant with my mom, but that is a story for another day. Anyway, my mom lived in this big blue home for about eight plus years, and I lived with her on and off during those years. The house was built in the early 1900s and is split into three separate apartments now. My mom lived in the largest apartment, a three-bedroom located on the ground floor. And when she moved out, I moved into the apartment with my current roommate and her boyfriend. And eventually, my roommate and I moved into the two-bedroom upstairs when her and her boyfriend split up about a year ago. It's a lot of backstory, but probably needed. Anyway, times two. (laughs) She said it before. That's cute. My mom has always been open and interested in the paranormal. Her whole side of the family has a ton of experiences, and they've always openly talked to me about them. When I was 14, she moved into the apartment, and when I would come stay with her, I would feel weird. I've always been a little wuss, though, despite reading and watching horror movies constantly since I was about six. So I was like, obviously I'm feeling this way because I'm always scared of everything. I always slept on the couch when I would stay, and from the couch, you could see the hall and part of the kitchen through a doorway at the end of the dining room. As I watched TV, I constantly felt my eyes shifting to this doorway. It felt like I was being watched. And one day, my aunt tells me that she saw the man in my kitchen, and that my grandma saw the same man, that they had both separately told my mom that they saw him without discussing it with each other first. And my mom confided to them that she had also seen him. Whenever they saw him, he was either in the kitchen or the hallway, and my mom told me she's seen him peeking around the corner, watching her while she watched TV. This had me shook, but also ended up making me feel better because now I knew I wasn't crazy. I don't want to beat around the bush. My stepdad was an abusive asshole, but not until I started living with my mom when I was 16. He slowly transformed into a very angry and volatile man after losing his job and turning to meth. It really sucked. Eventually, I got the fuck out of there, but his negativity affected the entire household and pissed off the ghost or ghosts. (laughs) My mom told me that when I moved out, things got progressively worse, and she believes it was from all the negative energy. Their beds would shake at night. There would be large booms that sound like they were coming from inside the walls. Lights would turn on and off. My mom even watched the knob on her bedside table lamp click off, and my Stepdad eventually was kicked to the curb. Hooray. Things kind of calmed down for a little bit, but they definitely did not end. I moved back in with my mom again when I was 23 slash 24 and again got to deal with all the ghosties. My mom confided in me about the above stuff and my siblings who were 7, 10, and 12 at the time were so used to the ghosts that it barely phased them at that point. She also told me that one night they had gone to see a scary movie and when it was time for my sisters to go to bed, they were very spooked. Eventually, one of them got up and told my mom that there was a woman in their closet throwing quarters at them. (laughs) My mom went to check it out and didn't notice anything, so she decided it was probably just the scary movie getting to them. 
She felt this way until she went to use the bathroom and found a quarter. When she went to use the bathroom and a quarter flew past her face. What? She let my sisters sleep in her bed with her after that. This is so long, but there is more. So when I moved in, I started experiencing stuff pretty quickly. I still felt like I was being watched every night while sleeping on the couch, and it eventually felt like the watcher was getting closer while I slept. I would sleep with my face towards the back of the couch, but I always felt this nagging feeling that someone was standing over my shoulder. I told my mom about it, and she told me the ghost started venturing out to the living room and was probably just curious about me and wanted to check it out. It felt gross, but I pretty much got used to it. One night, I was dead asleep, and I woke up to the sound of a toy going off behind the couch. I looked at my phone, and it was exactly 3 a.m. I sat up terrified, yelled at it to stop because I had to wake up early. I fumbled around in the dark for the toy and turned on the lights. The toy had not been disturbed in any way. The cats were asleep in my mom's bedroom, and there was no one in the living room except for me, and I had to really work in order to turn the toy off which means whoever turned it on had to be trying really hard to slide the button to turn on. I eventually fell asleep and sort of just pushed it to the back of my brain. This is the last experience I can remember having there, besides just feeling like being watched regularly. But there is an apartment on the back side of the house, which is the only one I haven't lived in. And I don't think I would ever want to because I've heard a lot of stories about it from the people who have lived in there in the other apartments. And all of it is bad. People have up and left in the middle of the night, leaving behind all of their stuff and never coming back. People have gone insane in that apartment. And the worst thing is that a man murdered a sex worker in that apartment. Mm. I've heard two separate accounts of this, though. I was told by my mom that he stuffed her under the kitchen sink and that his mom found her. And the other was told to my roommate by some, so- by some of our neighbors. And that story went that he moved her to the dumpster behind the house and that she was found by the garbage men. Now that we live in the two-bedroom apartment, things have calmed down quite a bit. We haven't had many experiences besides my bedroom door moving on its own once, the heaters being turned on and off by themselves, and the front door being opened or closed by itself. But sometimes it feels like it's targeting me over my roommate, because things seem to always happen when I'm home alone. One morning, my boyfriend and I woke up super early, and while lying in bed, we both heard two bangs that shook the entire house. A pause. And then three bangs that again shook the entire house. And then silence. We were both like, whoa, what was that? We still have no explanation for it, but he tries to rationalize it. But it didn't sound like anything that I could imagine. The bangs weren't very loud, but it was like the volume of someone knocking on a door. But it wasn't the door knocking. And the house shook. All of the other apartments are currently empty and we are the only people in them. So it couldn't have been our neighbor's. The weirdest part is that my roommate was awake and didn't hear or feel anything. That's so weird. Mm Mm-hmm. One last thing, I swear. My boyfriend woke up early in the morning to grab something from the living room and ran back in the room with wide eyes, asking me if it's possible to see a ghost early in the morning. I shot out of bed like, what? Then he told me he saw a large black shadow go through my roommate's door and that he had ran to the front hallway to see if there was a burglar or something because her door is right next to the front door, but no one was there. He was super freaked out, went into her room to ask if she saw anything, but she slept on the couch that night and had woken up to go to her room only a few moments before he had seen the shadow. Her door was closed, and she was wearing a light-colored shirt, so it couldn't have been her. We did a bunch of tests to see what it would be like if he was rounding the corner and if it would look like someone was going into her room, 
but it didn't resemble anything that we had seen that morning, and it still freaks him out. Isn't it odd that after a ghost encounter, your brain sort of just rationalizes it or pushes it to the side and you just move on with your day? Anyway, that's all I have from the Big Blue House. I love your podcast, and I listen to it almost every day while I open and close at work. Apparently, my current work is haunted, but I'll send you another one about the haunted workplaces, and hopefully that will be shorter. From Jovel. That is, she brings up a good point, is that when you're experiencing paranormal activity, or when you think that you're going to experience paranormal activity, you'd assume that it would absolutely, like, rock your world, and that you'd, like, how could you focus on anything else? But Mm -hmm. when you're actually in it, you just, you just move on. Yeah. It's super weird. Yeah, you kind of have to. Because it's like, especially if it's in your apartment, it's like you you have to live here. So you have to find some way to just kind of move past it to the point where you're like, I still feel okay living here. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It's all just so, they've had so many experiences. and Yeah. And I'm curious if it's related to the murder that happened in that yeah. back apartment or if it's all separate and there just are many spirits in this building. And the really loud bangs. And I'm so curious about what happened like for so many of the tenants to leave. I want to know why. (laughs) I want those people to email us. And it's also fascinating to think about the fact that perhaps it's targeting, like the house is targeting certain people or that back apartment is targeting certain people because for her roommate to be fully awake and never hear anything, but that she heard all of the like bangs and crashes. Right. It's, it reminds me of that one listener story that has clearly messed me up because it stayed with me for so long. <laughs> and I think it was from like Encounters number four. But oh my gosh, where the woman was levitating and she was like against the ceiling. Remember? <gasps> yes. And she oh was my God. screaming. And yet her boyfriend that was five feet away from her down on the bed didn't hear a thing. Oh, God, that's so terrifying. You're right. That one really did stick with us. Yes. But it's also weird. Okay. This is scary. So. I'm sorry, Jovelle, but so she talked about the spirit that was on the first floor, the one that was in the living room and kind of started sneaking closer and closer to her and she felt like it was watching her and hovering over her while she slept. If that's on the first floor and she currently lives on the second floor, is the banging coming from this entity on the first floor who was trying to get to her apartment? Ew, 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 ew. Oh gosh, like trying to scratch its way through. That scares me. Yeah, because it started, you know, it started in the kitchen and then started to slowly move. And her mom made a point of saying like, oh yeah, he started moving. Yeah, that's a good point. Or it's nothing. Or, or it's nothing. <laughs> Who are we to say? Who are we to say? It's gotta be, I don't know. You're fine. You're fine. Everything's fine. Let your brain tell you it's fine because sometimes we need that. Also, I'm surprised that the old, I want to, my brain is just trying to wrap itself around quarters being thrown because. Oh, yeah. Like 25 cents is a lot of money. Like that's, that's parking change right there. (laughs) So I would, I would expect it to be like pennies, but what does the quarter symbolize to this woman and why is she aggressively throwing them? Like what, what does that mean? She's like, get your money back for that movie because you're all too scared. Yeah, seriously. I don't know. That's an interesting tactic. Wow. Ooh, spooky stories, spookiness. 
So many. If you guys have any stories or experiences of your own, you can email them to us at two girls, one goes podcast at gmail.com. If you don't know our email, it is linked on our Instagram and also on our website and also in the show notes. So just scroll up on your listening device app and click more info for this episode and you can find all of the sponsors and all the info and details. And while you're at it, you should also rate and review us on iTunes because, hey, that's very important. That would be really lovely. And if you're also looking for other ways to support us, you can support us by telling a lot of people about us. You can vote for us whenever there are different BuzzFeed articles or any sort of competition Mm -hmm. out there for podcasting. Um, You can rock some of our merchandise from our website. And you can also support us on Patreon. And we will see you on the other side. side.